Straight out of Finland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Helsinki's Collegium for Advanced Studies. By the time this airs, I will be in Texas. I'm going to be riding some mechanical bulls, eating some brisket, and drinking some whiskey sours. I wanted to give you some quick updates from the open road on the future of the podcast. I have a lot of exciting stuff coming up next year, but you're only going to see a couple more episodes before Christmas. I need some time to see my family and relax before I can get right back at it again. Also, I wanted to give you my own hot take on the nature of time. And just, you know, what do I think about the relational and the absolute theories of time? If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Ready or not, here I am talking about time and change. Enjoy. So by the time this episode airs, I will be running around Texas for the Evangelical Philosophical Society and for the American Academy of Religion conferences. So that's two different conferences uh, that, that are taking me to America. So then after the Texas, I'll be heading up north to see my family for Thanksgiving. This is going to be my first American Thanksgiving in several years. Now, since I'm on the road, it will take me a bit longer to edit the upcoming podcast episodes with Sam Liebens on the principles of Judaism and Randall Rouser on Does God Love the Canaanites? Now, those are some really good episodes, so I think it's going to be worth the wait. Now, in this episode, I thought I would do a few different things. First, I want to update you on some different projects that I'm working on at the moment. And then second, I wanted to talk a bit about my own views on the nature of time. So let's just get right into it. So what do I have upcoming with the podcast? I've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up for you on the podcast. While I'm traveling around Texas, I'm going to be recording some episodes at these different conferences. I'm going to be interviewing Jordan Wesling about his recent book, Love Divine. We'll be looking at the nature of God's love and reasons why God would create anything at all. And then also, Andrew Hollingsworth and I, we're going to be chatting about divine simplicity and the Trinity. Can the doctrine of divine simplicity be reconciled with the doctrine of the Trinity? I'm guessing you already know what my answer to that question is, but let's wait and see what Andrew has to say. Then as soon as I get back to Finland, I have interviews lined up with my friends in the theology department at the University of Helsinki. So Aku Vasala and I, we're going to be talking about analytic theology and the natural sciences. Ali Pekavainio and I, we're going to be discussing the doctrine of original sin. And there's a lot of different problems related to original sin and original guilt. Ali is going to try to figure out a way out of all this mess. And then Larry Lanonen and I are going to be chatting about our brand new paper on classical theism and the cognitive science of religion. In our new paper, we argue that classical theism is counterintuitive compared to rival models of God like open theism. Now, some people online, they've already told me that they're really not bothered by the fact that classical theism is counterintuitive when compared to other models of God. I mean, I guess that's fine. And if you want to hold counterintuitive and implausible beliefs, I mean, you know, go for it. I'm not going to stop you. But if you admit that your model of God is counterintuitive and thus implausible, then maybe don't go around saying how superior your model of God is. You know, just, just a thought. Now, recently I did a panel discussion at the World Parliament of Religions. The title for the panel was, Should Christians Be Compassionate If Classical Theism Says That God Is Not? Now, Thomas J. Ord, Bethany Solerator, myself, uh, we just... We were not expecting the backlash that we received online for that panel topic. 
Apparently, internet classical theists were not used to hearing the actual classical tradition deny that God is literally compassionate. Which was a surprise to me, since I had already prepared to quote a bunch of classical theists denying that God has compassion. You know, people like Anselm, Brian Davies, and Herbert McCabe. Anyway, the panel discussion, it was really interesting, so I'm going to be recording some episodes with Tom and Bethany about their topics. And I'm going to also record an episode on my argument, Is the God of Classical Theism a Psychopath? So I've got some other exciting stuff coming up on the podcast, too. In February, I'll be heading to Berlin for a brand new workshop on religion and emotion. This is a workshop that's going to be running for a few years. So I'm currently trying to figure out who I want to interview while I'm there. Then later in the spring, I'm going to be heading over to the University of Leeds. Some of you may remember Tasia Scruton. I've had her on the show a few times. So she's organizing a brilliant workshop on mental health and Christianity. And she's got a group of psychologists and theologians ready for me to interview while I'm there. So you're going to be able to get the inside scoop of what is happening at this conference. And so that's just a little glimpse of what's coming up on the next year on the podcast. I am also in some conversations with other people for interviews on freedom and foreknowledge, universal salvation, the existence of God. Uh, There's a lot of stuff going on. So all that to say, the future of the show looks pretty exciting. But of course, the show, that's not the only thing I'm working on. I'm also doing a lot of writing. And so I've got several forthcoming papers on panentheism, God and time, divine simplicity, God and emotion, you know, a lot of the standard stuff I've been doing. But I'm currently working on three book projects. So the first is From Divine Time Maker to Divine Watchmaker. And so this is exploring divine temporality, rival ontologies of time, and the doctrines of creation, providence, and life after death. I've also recently signed a contract to write a book for Cascade, provisionally titled A Little Book About a Big God. This is going to be my attempt to write a relatively short book on the doctrine of God. The idea is to write a book that's 100 pages or less, and that is actually affordable in price. So this will not be one of those $100 books. It's hopefully going to be you know, something you could actually buy. So that's the idea. And the big question is, is basically just, what do I actually think about the nature of God? Because sometimes I get a bunch of questions going, Ryan, you're always playing devil's advocate for different positions. What do you actually think? Well, I'll tell you what I actually think in this new book. I'm going to be exploring some topics that do not typically receive attention in standard textbooks on the nature of God. I mean, I'll be covering the systematic connections between the divine attributes. I mean, obviously, I'll do that. But I also want to look at some different questions related to divine rationality. So, like, why would God create anything at all? And then why would God create a universe like the one that we find ourselves in? If God knows the future, how can God genuinely have the range of emotions predicated of him in Scripture? And then empathy. Can God's empathy help him decide which universe to create? What does it mean for humans to empathize with God? And then what are the consequences of creation for God? Because it's not as if creating a universe has zero impact on God. When God creates a universe, there are consequences. Moral consequences, consequences for, the, for his power and his freedom. There's a lot of interesting stuff to explore, and I'm going to try to tackle these and a bunch of other unexplored questions about the nature of God. So those are two of the big books that I'm working on at the moment, but I mentioned that there's a third book that I'm starting to slowly work on. So Tom Ord recently challenged me to write a book called Divine Simplicity and Other Theological Mistakes. 
I really like the title that Tom suggested, so I have slowly begun working on the manuscript for this. I'm trying to identify different like mistakes that theologians commonly make and trying to explain why we should avoid them and how to avoid them and then apply those to topics like divine simplicity, impassibility, God's moral uh, life, God's emotional life, these sort of issues. That's, that's the idea for this project. So those are some of the upcoming projects that I'm working on. So stay tuned for all of those exciting episodes that I mentioned earlier. Okay, so like I said, I want to talk about the question, what is time? So Marcello Oreste Fiocco complains that contemporary philosophy of time does not attempt to answer the fundamental question, what is time? Most debates in the philosophy of time, they focus on different issues about the direction of time, tense versus tenseless theories, what moments of time exist, and, and so on. And those issues have played an important role in debates over God's relationship to time, but it seems curious that people are debating God's relationship to time without first addressing what time is. I mean, most discussions start by quoting Augustine saying that he does not know what time is, and then they just kind of carry on from there. I think that's less than helpful. So one thing that most contemporary philosophers of time agree on is that whatever time is, it must have some sort of close relationship with change. Yet the precise relationship between time and change is not entirely clear. By way of example, consider D.H. Meller's reflections on the matter. So Meller says, change here I take to be temporal variation in the properties of things. And by this I mean that changes are things having, at different times, incompatible properties. Properties that no thing could have at the same time. So according to Meller, time is certainly the dimension of change in this sense. Variations must be temporal changes. Yet Meller says that this is an unsatisfactory account of time, because mere variation does not distinguish space from time. So though Meller thinks that there is a close relationship between time and change, he seems to think that merely invoking change is insufficient to, to capture exactly what time is. Now, the two most prominent theories of, on what time is are called the relational theory and the absolute theory. I'll start with the relational theory, and then I'll move on to discuss the absolute theory. So the relational theory of time runs into immediate difficulties before we even get started. The relational theory starts with the assumption that time exists if and only if change exists. Yet, from there, things become ambiguous immediately. W.H. Newton-Smith comments that the relational theory of time has been so attractive to physicists and philosophers that they have not really bothered to articulate it and defend it. They just think the position must be true. Yet the lack of articulation, I mean, that leads to a theory that is so nebulous that one wonders what the theory could possibly be. I mean, according to John Ehrman, there are almost as many versions of relationalism as there are relationalists. I don't think that's a good thing. That leaves the theory just so ambiguous that I, I don't really understand what it could be. Um, so let's, let's dig a little bit deeper here. One version of the relational theory of time holds that time cannot exist without change because time just is change. Yet this runs into an immediate problem. If one takes time to simply be change, then trying to understand how we use time to measure a series of changes becomes rather baffling. One would be using change to measure change. Well, I mean, that's just confusing. Hence, the relational theory of time ought not to say that time simply is change. 
It's better to say that time exists if and only if change exists, with change being understood to occur over a series of events. And this is a reductionist view, which says that time is reduced to a relationship between events. Events are the more fundamental entities that give rise to our temporal notions. Yet this also seems to raise problems. This relationalist strategy needs to explain the relationship between events in non-temporal terms. Otherwise, they are sneaking in temporal notions when they are meant to be explaining where our temporal notions come from. The problem is that it is difficult to explain the relationships between events without relying on temporal notions like before and after or simultaneous. A similar problem besets relational theories that say that time is parasitic on change. This is because change is standardly accounted for in temporal terms, such as saying that change is an object having incompatible properties at different moments of time. So again, time is snuck back into the story when time was supposed to be explained by non-temporal things. According to Robin Leipetevin, relationalism says, quote, that time is just an ordered series of events, each individual moment identified with a collection of simultaneous events. Newton Smith says that the suggestion from the proponent of this relational theory of time is that moments of time are constructed out of events that are simultaneous with each other. And as Dean Zimmerman explains, a moment of time just is the sum of all the events occurring then. Well, that sounds confusing because it already has some sort of temporal notion built into the definition. In Zimmerman's definition, it assumes the temporal notion then. Whereas in Leipetevin and Newton Smith's definition, it uses the temporal notion of simultaneous. I mean, this just seems hopelessly circular because it's already presupposed temporal notions. Well, consider E.J. Lowe's discussion of events. Lowe points out that events are things that occur or happen. And so Lowe says, and here's a quote, This tells us indeed that events are temporal entities. An event is a temporal particular an item which happens or occurs at a particular time and is not repeatable. An event just is the exemplification of a property by an object at a time. Think about that for a second. Ulrich Mayer points out that standard definitions of events like Lowe's presuppose the existence of time, thus introducing a circularity problem. The circularity problem is that events have an occurrence or a when, thus presupposing the existence of time. Hence, there appears to be a vicious circularity here in the relational theory's understanding of time. It cannot be the case that the relationships between events give rise to the existence of time, since the very notion of an event presupposes the existence of time. Because again, an event is a property being exemplified by an object at a time. So given these kinds of problems, one may wish to consider the absolute theory of time. So looking to the East, Jainism says that time is an eternal substance, the function of which is to explain the existence of things in the present, but also to explain the existence of change and movement. So Jainism distinguishes between time itself and what they'll call conventional time. So conventional time consists of an infinite number of temporal atoms, or what one can call instants or moments. These are the smallest possible units of conventional time. Each time atom or moment is distinct and cannot be mixed with other moments. This is because moments are ordered successively. However, we can carve out larger units of conventional time, such as minutes, hours, and years. 
These divisions of conventional time into different measurable units are dependent upon external factors, like the movements of the planets and the stars. So the moments or the time atoms themselves are dependent on time. And every change is accompanied by a moment of time, but time itself is the continuing reality underneath these changes and underneath the series of, of moments. So time is what makes change possible and what makes the moments progress. In the Nyaya school of Indian philosophy, time is also taken to be a substance. Time is an eternal and uncaused substance that is the cause and basis for the notions of priority, posteriority, simultaneity, and succession. As Dabika Saba points out, the Nyaya school takes time to be a substance that is independently real. Time is not contained in anything, but rather is all-pervasive. Time is the necessary antecedent or condition of any event, movement, or change. Saba writes, For any causal notion, the idea of absolute time is accepted as a necessary presupposition. Any causal operation is necessarily an event in time. No event is conceivable without time as its receptacle. According to Nyaya philosophy, to deny time an object of reality is to face a static universe where there is no room for any change or movement. Further, this school of thought distinguishes between time and moments of time. And so the divisions of time into moments like past, present, and future are not essential features of time itself. Instead, those are features of the moments themselves. And the temporal order of moments is not reversible. In other words, unlike space, time has one direction. So according to Saba, a moment is the point of time that refers to the final phase of cause in the initial phase of effect. So let me go back to Fioko, who I mentioned earlier. So Fioko offers a similar analysis of time that distinguishes between time itself and moments of time. Now following his lead, I say that time is a natured entity that makes change possible, that is the ontological source of moments, and is that which orders a set of, of successive moments into a coherent timeline. So I take a moment of time to be the way things are but could be subsequently otherwise. A moment is a win things or events happen. Moments could be thought of as abstract or concrete. For example, one might say that moments of time are nearly maximal proposition-like entities that can obtain or fail to obtain. These proposition-like entities have built within them earlier than and later than relations with other possible moments. And then moments can be successively ordered in different ways. So a timeline is a particular coherent ordering of moments. But most philosophers say that the particular ordering of moments is a contingent matter. So a theologian might say that whichever particular order of moments comes about is due to the providential activity of God. Now, as I understand things, time itself does not necessarily have a metric. A metric can only apply to a timeline if certain other features obtain. In particular, there need to be uniform laws of nature that can provide the basis for consistent periodic changes in order to develop a metric. Now, in describing these successive series of moments as a timeline, I want to be clear about something. I'm not ruling out Eastern philosophical reflections on the nature of time. You've probably heard it said that Westerners see time as linear, whereas Easterners see time as circular. But this is actually a misrepresentation of actual Indian understandings of the nature of time. According to Andita Balsalev, this constant slogan that Easterners believe in cyclical time 
it actually thwarts interreligious communication because it falsely assumes that the Judeo-Christian religions have a radically different conception of time from the Indian religions. Hinduism, for example, does believe in a pattern of birth, death, and reincarnation, but such events occur successively. One universe comes into existence, and then it is destroyed, and then another universe is brought into existence, and so on. Well, these events are all successively ordered into a coherent timeline. As Balsalev makes clear, Hindu philosophers had many debates about the nature of time. Is time absolute or relational? Are the moments of time discrete or continuous? Those questions were all fiercely debated. Yet no one debated if time is actually circular instead of linear. It was just simply assumed that time is linear. There's some other questions I want to address in this episode. The f this next question is, does God create time? So I want to return to this earlier discussion I had about the relational versus absolute theory. So a common assumption is that God is the creator of all things apart from himself. And proponents of the relational theory of time, like, say, Augustine or William Lane Craig, they typically say that God creates time with the universe. Well, if they wanted to, they could run different objections to proponents of the absolute theory of time, because the absolute theory of time says that time is an eternal, uncaused substance. And here's how the objection could go. Premise 1. God is the creator of all things distinct from himself. Premise 2. Time is an uncreated thing distinct from God. That's just the absolute theory right there. Premise 3. If time is an uncreated thing distinct from God, then God is not the creator of all things distinct from himself. Premise 4. Thus, God is not the creator of all things distinct from himself. And then premise 5. Thus, God is the creator of all things distinct from himself, and God is not the creator of all things distinct from himself. So what I've done is just derived a contradiction between the absolute theory of time and the very nature of God as the creator of all things. That's a contradiction. And you don't want that. you got to remove it. One strategy for removing the contradiction comes from the Islamic philosopher Al-Razi. What he does is he denies the first premise, which is that God is the creator of all things distinct from himself. That's going to be very provocative. So on, on Al-Razi's view, God is not the creator of all things distinct from himself. For Al-Razi, there are five eternal, uncaused substances that exist. There's God, there's this world soul, there's prime matter, there's absolute space and absolute time. Now, Al-Razi maintains that the world soul creates the universe at a particular time. But nothing creates time because time is not the sort of thing that can be created. Now, this view is most likely going to be seen as less than satisfactory to a lot of contemporary thinkers. And actually, a lot of people in Al-Razi's time and afterwards just thought it was, it was outrageous as well. And this is because part of the concept of God is that of a perfect being, which is the single ultimate foundation of reality. And on Al-Razi's view, God is not the single ultimate foundation of reality. So one might complain that this is just, you know, denying the very fundamentality of God and denying that God really is the single ultimate foundation of reality. But you might also complain that this is a really bloated ontology. You've got far too many eternal uncaused substances just floating around. I mean, what do you, why do you have five different substances floating around when you could just have one eternal uncaused substance floating around? So in the, in the Hindu tradition, there's this, there's this thinker named Raghunata Shiromani. And he has this sort of worry about having a bloated ontology, but he's unwilling to abandon the absolute theory of time. So what he does is he proposes a different strategy for avoiding the contradiction. What he does is he rejects premise two, 
he just says he's not convinced that there's enough justification to infer that time is an independent, eternal, and uncaused substance. Instead, what he does is he identifies time with God. And part of his argument is that it is more ontologically parsimonious to posit one independent, eternal, and uncaused substance than two, and definitely more than five, you know. So God is the sort of being who can fulfill all the roles of time. God is an independent, eternal, and uncaused substance who supports the existence of everything else and makes change possible. God can explain the existence of moments, explain why things exist now, and explain why certain events exist in earlier-than-relations with other events. So time is nothing but God, on Sharomani's view. Now, identifying time with God is a major theme within Indian philosophy, but it also has precedent within Western thought. In reflecting upon early modern British philosophy, Emily Thomas distinguishes between three different kinds of absolute theories of time. First, there's what she calls Morian absolutism, named after Henry Moore. This view says that time is identified with God. God and time may be conceptually distinct, but in reality they are the same being. Now, this Morian absolutism, that's able to avoid this contradiction because it's not saying that there's this independent substance that God does not create. Instead, this view, this Morian view, identifies time with God. But Emily Thomas says there are two other views about God and absolute time within the early modern period. So the second view she calls the Gassendist absolutism, named after Pierre Gassendi. This view can maintain that God and absolute time are independent substances, though time somehow depends upon God. So they are distinct substances, but you know maybe God creates time, or maybe time just kind of emanates from God. Those are some options. So what you'd be doing there is you'd be avoiding the contradiction because you would be denying that time is this, this eternal, uncaused substance. And then the third view that uh, Emily Thomas identifies is called Newtonian absolutism, named after Isaac Newton. So this view makes no connection between God and absolute time. I don't really know how you can use this to avoid the objection I've just laid out. Here is an important historical point, though. Emily Thomas points out that Newton himself is actually a Morian absolutist. And in fact, she thinks that the majority of the British absolutists about time were Morian. What she has in mind are thinkers like John Turner, Samuel Clark, Samuel Colliber, uh, and a whole list of others. There's only a minority of figures affirm the Gassendus view, such as Walter Charlatan and Samuel Parker. So there is precedent within Eastern religions and within Christianity itself for identifying time with God. There's another question that I want to tackle in this episode, which is what was God doing before he created the universe? This is basically the question that we heard in the last two episodes with Eric Wielenberg and with William Lane Craig, trying to figure out what exactly was going on before God created the universe and how does it relate to what God is doing subsequent to creating the universe. Well, St. Augustine jokingly says that God was creating hell for people who ask these kind of questions. Then when he tries to give a serious answer, he says that, well, you know, there just was no time before creation. God creates time with creation. So what was God doing before he created the universe is just a meaningless question. I'm not so certain exactly how meaningless it is because Augustine affirms multiple times in multiple places in his writings that God exists without the universe. The universe is not co-eternal with God. There's an actual state of affairs where God exists all alone. That seems to raise the question, what was God doing? 
sure, maybe it's not before he creates the universe, but you could still ask the question, what, what was it? What was God up to? I like the way the Apostle Paul thinks about this question. The Apostle Paul says that prior to creation, God was plotting to take over the world. God was planning certain things, doing certain things. I mean, this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. I have to ask a very important question at this point. When I look at passages like Ephesians chapter 1, they talk about God doing things before he creates the universe. This is not some non-temporal before, because the Bible knows nothing of non-temporal or timeless existence. All of the biblical words for eternity are temporal terms. There just is no hint of timelessness in the Bible. And the Bible is very comfortable describing God as existing before the universe and is doing things before the universe comes into existence. Sometimes I wonder when, when Christian theologians talk about God being timeless without the universe, I wonder how far away they're drifting from the very biblical phrase, before the world began. If you have to say things like timeless without the universe because you can't say before, well, you're abandoning very explicit biblical language. And I just feel unmotivated to do that today. Maybe I'll be convinced by other arguments that I should abandon the biblical language of God predestining and foreknowing and doing a whole bunch of other stuff before the universe exists. But for today, I think I'll stick with the biblical language of God existing before the world. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Sam Liebens on the principles of Judaism. 